0: Hey guys, thank you so much for joining us for the NCC podcast. God is doing so many great things in our community and I trust that he's doing great things in your life as well. And I trust that God is going to speak to you through this message. Well, my hope for us tonight is that we would receive the teaching of Jesus and that we would leave here differently, obviously. And so uh, on Wednesday nights, if you've missed it, we've been currently looking at the teachings of Jesus in our Bible study. Last week, Pastor Destiny, I believe, taught on the Sermon on the Mount. Come on, how, how many of you were here last week for the Sermon on the Mount? Incredible. Powerful. The Sermon on the Mount. Can't get, you can't get more Jesus' teaching than that. But tonight and next week, we're actually going to take a little bit of a shift, still looking at the teachings of Jesus, and specifically we're going to look at another set of teachings Jesus gave, known as the Olivet Discourse. It's the teaching that Jesus gave as he was standing, or rather sitting, on the Mount of Olives to his disciples. It's, it's, it's known as the Olivet Discourse. And so I believe as we unpack this, man, I think we're going to see how it affects our lives today. It's incredible teaching. And so something I want to make clear to us tonight is this. Jesus is the teacher. He's the teacher whom we should sit at his feet and hear what he has to say. The reason I say that is because I think often we see him as a distant savior, but not a relevant teacher today. And so sometimes we make Jesus still hanging on the cross and like he was, a, he was this mute religious figure who didn't have much to say. But as we open up the gospels and as we read what's recorded his words, we see the things he had to say not only are profound and philosophical, but they affect our lives and the way we live our lives talking about topics such as money and marriage, sex, violence, forgiveness, right where we're living. Jesus was no stranger to this, and an iPhone doesn't change much of that, does it? If anything, it intensifies the need to want to lean into the teachings of Jesus. Look what this one crowd said about Jesus in Mark 1 and 22. They said, they were astounded. They were like, what? At, at, at what? His teaching. For he taught them as one having authority, not as the other scribes, not as the other religious figures. He taught with authority. See, Jesus knows what he's talking about. He has an understanding about life, the kingdom of God, the culture of heaven, reality, emotions, and so much more. He's not only a savior. I want you to see him tonight as a teacher, but not only a teacher, the teacher who has understanding about life and God and how all of this works. He has that. We also see in John 3, 2, this is a night that Nicodemus, a famous religious figure at the time, a teacher at the time, he said this about Jesus. He was meeting him secretly by night. It says that in John 3, 2, that he came to Jesus by night and said to him, Rabbi, we know that you are a teacher who has come from God. For no one can do these signs that you do apart from the presence of God. So what I love about Jesus. is He's not all words. He actually walked the walk. He backs up his words with signs. You know, I want to hear from a guy who can speak to a storm and it stops. I want to to hear from a guy who can say, rise to a dead man, and they rise. That's someone I want to sit at the feet of and listen and hear what he has to say. That's the kind of teacher that Jesus is. He's unlike any other. And he shouldn't be put on par with people like Socrates or Plato or or any other, maybe your favorite fourth grade teacher who told you that you were pretty. He is the spoken word of God. He is the teacher of all teachers. More than the words he said, he is the person who embodies everything he says. He's the teacher of teachers. And you know, I, what I found is this, you can always tell if a teacher really cares by how creative they are in getting you to understand. And so Jesus, we find, is an incredibly creative and innovative teacher. He speaks in parables known as stories, short stories. That was very, very common in Eastern culture. He spoke in riddles and paradoxes and exaggerations. If your right hand causes you to sin, cut it off. Because it's better to go to heaven with one hand than to hell with two. With, with, with two. That's an exaggeration. He's, he's not literally telling you to cut off your hand, but what is he teaching? He used poetry. Proverbs, Jesus Jesus is a teacher who wants you and I to understand, but, everybody say but, but it takes some digging, doesn't it? That's what I love about this is that he's deep enough that you have to dig, but he's simple enough that anyone can understand. And that's that's both the beauty and the mystery of Jesus. That's what makes Jesus, I believe, to be the teacher of all teachers. Because when he needed to be direct, he was direct and he said it plainly. I am God this is the way of life but when he needed to, to cut through the fuzz and through the lies and the deceptions that we believe so often the error in our in our thinking as we grow up he cuts through it all and he makes us think he confronts us he's a very wise teacher it's also said I don't have it on here but it's also said Jesus also spoke of his spirit in John John 14 he says that when the spirit comes, He will teach you of things. He'll teach you of things to come. The Holy Spirit, the Holy Spirit that resides in every believer that's in this room, he is a teacher. And and when you are faced with indecision, when you are faced with confusion, when you don't know what to do next, you can consult the Holy Spirit who is the teacher, the Spirit of Christ, and he will teach you and he will tell you of things to come and he will whisper And drop thoughts in your heart. You know, I'm a father of now three kids. That means I'm not sleeping right now. But my my six-year-old boy, my three-year-old boy, and my obviously my little girl who's three weeks old. You know, there's been many times. Any parents in the room? You know what I'm talking about. Have you ever parented and had a moment when like, I don't know what to do? Do you know what I'm saying? What do I say to that? Like, like Sam like told a lie, and I was just like, man, that's a really good lie. I I almost believed that. Like, what do I do with that? Whoa, you know. And the world, the world. My my my, other people may say would push like just be aggressive or 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 you know offhand parenting or you know gentle touch. So it's like you read all these books. Like, what do I do? What do I do? And then I remember just having a moment and asking the Holy Spirit, what do I do with this? And I've gotten so many insights from about parenting in the moment, each kid and each kid different, just from the Holy Spirit. I know that sounds hocus pocus. I know that it does. I know it does. But for those who believe, you know, to the unspiritual, the spiritual things seem foolish and crazy. I know. But this is the way of life that I think every believer can live. We have, we can tap into the wisdom of God because we are carriers of his presence. I believe that. I, that's not in my notes. I really feel like I need to say that here tonight to some of you. You are not tapping into the potential of what lives on the inside of you. You have the teacher of all teachers. Some of you, you're having marital issues and you don't know what to do next. And yet you have the teacher of all teachers who live on the inside. He wants to give you direction. Some of you are facing dilemmas in your job, in your workplace. You don't know how to handle that coworker. You know the one I'm talking about. And the Holy Spirit, the teacher of teachers, wants to give you insight about how to navigate those circles, how to navigate those conversations. He can do that. He truly can do that. Going back to the notes, Jesus taught about many topics that encompass all of life. And again, I want to make a push for this. If you haven't read through the Sermon on the Mount, that's found in Matthew 5, 6, and 7. Spend some time. I've read it through many, many times and I still read it afresh. I read it like I've never read it before. It is, it is incredibly deep and it hits on every part of our life. But tonight we're gonna be looking at the Olivet Discourse, this teaching that Jesus did on the Mount of Olives. It says this in Matthew 24:3. It says that when he was sitting on the Mount of Olives, the disciples came to him privately saying, tell us, when will this be? And what will be the sign of your coming and of the age, the end of the age? And so after Jesus makes a comment about the temple being coming down and and, 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 the, and the disciples would come to him and ask him this privately, when are you going to come back? When are you going to start doing the things that we thought you were going to do? When is all of this going to turn around? You see, I think the disciples want to make sense of their present by knowing the end. And I think that we're so different. I think that we can all go through anything if we know how it ends. I mean, after all, I mean, this is what makes us go through, this is what makes it possible to go to the dentist. I can brave laying down in that chair so vulnerable because I know what's gonna happen at the end of it. I'm gonna eventually get back up. My mouth won't be so numb. Things are gonna be okay. So much of what we go through in the present, if we know the end of the matter, it brings a sense of comfort. It brings a sense of decision. It informs where we are today. The future gives meaning to our present struggle and our present decisions. And that's why the disciples are wanting to know this. Jesus, give me the insider scoop. What's the future really look like? What is it all about? Because I want to make sense of the tensions and the pressures that I feel today. Let me know the end so I can make sense of the present. And so they're asking about Jesus' coming, the end of the age. Why are they doing that? Well, because when Jesus returns, all will be revealed. The powers at be will cease. Everything, how the world operates, the world order, all of it will be turned upside down and the king of kings will be set up for eternity. All will shift. The end of oppression will happen. The end of sickness and disease will cease. Sounds almost too good to be true, doesn't it? Of course, I would want to know when that happens as well. To think about that there'd be a time where that would happen, that abortions would be no more prejudice, and hatred would be no more under his kingship, under his lordship. No wonder they long for that. And so the disciples and Jesus are sitting on the Mount of Olives. I don't know if you have this image for me up, up there, but there's this image of this panoramic view. Oh, I didn't send it to you, sorry. There's this panoramic view when you're sitting on the Mount of Olives. I've been there in, in Israel and it's basically a large hillside. And when you sit on the hillside, And you look over, you can see the entire city of Jerusalem. You can see it all. And so while they're having this conversation, they're sitting on this hillside, they're seeing the whole city before them. imagine the sun is probably setting at this point. It's breathtaking. And Jesus is telling his disciples, all of this is going to be destroyed. And they're like, what? When is this going to happen? What, What, I mean, wait, what? And so Jesus answers their question. And he says, yeah, all of this is gonna be torn down. You wanna know the future? All of it will. And you know, it does. Jesus is speaking around 30 AD. The the fall of Jerusalem happened in 70 AD. This is 40 years later, he prophesies it. It does. The fall of of the temple, the collapse of temple, the collapse of Jerusalem. It does, 40 years later. But then Jesus speaks about something else. He speaks about something in the distant future. And that's often when you read the Bible, when you're reading Jesus, Jesus is so deep like that where he sometimes is talking about things that are in the present, and then he's speaking about things to come in the way distant future. And so it's muddled. It's often when you read a prophet, a minor or major prophet in the Old Testament, you'll get images of that, like Isaiah. He's the most famous of all. You'll read something in Isaiah, and something he's talking about, it's very historical, that happened way back then, and then you get, get, it's called typology in theology, you'll get a typology of something that's stringing to when Jesus came. And that points towards a different future that we're all looking forward to. So as we peel back the Mount of Olives Olives and his teaching, we're going to see that. We're going to see that this is not just about the near future 40 years later. This is about something he's speaking to us today. And so the disciples who live long enough to see this first truth, who live long enough to see Jerusalem fall, I imagine that what echoed in their ears is what Jesus spoke about his return that if that is true, then maybe what he said about himself is true as well. He is coming back. He is returning and what all that means. Jesus answers their question not by telling them when he will return, but rather he describes what it will be like and how a person ought to live in light of his return. And that's what we're gonna be looking at together. Tonight and next week, we're gonna look at how the return of Jesus, what does that have to do with the kids I have to pick up, the laundry I have to do, the job that I work and the bills I have to pay? What does that have to do with anything? And we're gonna see that the return of Jesus has everything to do with how you live your life today. Every little choice. Acts 1.11, these are angels speaking to the disciples, the apostles, after Jesus ascended into heaven and was caught up in the clouds as the king of creation. They said this, men of Galilee, why do you stand looking upward towards heaven? This Jesus who has been taken up from you into heaven will come in the same way as you saw him go into heaven. Jesus' followers are unique. We have the honor of knowing the end. It's not speculation, it's a promise. It comes from a man who has never lied, who claims to be God, who died and rose again. We know the end and it's all centered around not an event, but a person and his arrival and his return. See, we count time around his first coming What year is it? It's 2022 AD, after the death of Jesus Christ, his first first coming. But where is history all headed towards? And sometimes life can feel that way. It feels like, what are we headed towards? COVID and job loss and crazy and wars and the Spanish flu 100 years ago. And what does it all mean? What are these wars and rumors of wars and what's happening in Ukraine? And what does all of it mean? And as Christians, we have the comfort the sobering truth of knowing we know where history's headed, towards a great unveiling, that had centered not in some cosmic weird lizard king from space, but centered in a man, Jesus Christ, who first came as a savior, but next is coming as a king and as Lord. That's what we're headed towards, and so as as Christians, Christ surrounds our life. In the the past, 2,000 years ago, we're wrestling and settling with the cross of Jesus. And what does it mean? And as a believer, the life that we live today, trusting God to do the miracles that he promised and that Jesus performed in the past. But not only in the past, and the present do we live. Christians also live with a very sure future that is ahead of us. That should stir us and comfort us and inform the way that we live today. Christ surrounds our life. Don't you see that? We're a part of a history that, is, that, that transcends us, that's bigger than us. God became a man in a point of history. And now we're caught up in this, this ripple effect, this wave that's been happening ever since. And here you're sitting today because of that wave. Because something caught your heart. A revolution began. And now you and I It's not that we're caught up in the past, it's not that we're even focused on the present. We're being beckoned and called towards a future that's sure. That the same man, this mystery that we've never met, Jesus, in the flesh, we will meet him in the flesh one day. And that should stir our hearts. It should put into framework when we have a wayward son or daughter, when we have trouble at work, when our health issues are, are giving us trouble. We find solace and forgiveness in the cross, yes. But there is a power when we recognize his return and what that will mean and what that means to us today. And so we're gonna look at a few of the the parables that Jesus teaches with hopes of how it's gonna affect us. And so I believe we can make sense of our current reality and sufferings if we know how it all ends, right? Awesome, let's, let's get into the meat of some of this. We're gonna look at tonight. We're gonna to look at two parables. There's four total that Jesus teaches in the Mount of Olivet. We're gonna look at two tonight, and we're gonna look at two next week. And each one is, a, it's, there's some symmetry, and then each one is something a little bit different. Again, Jesus is asking, you wanna know about the end? You wanna find solace in your present suffering by knowing the end? Let me tell you. And so he gives four stories, four analogies. Let's, uh, let's look at the first one. In Matthew 24, Verses 42 through 51, it says this. Keep awake, therefore, for, for you do not know on what day your Lord is coming. But understand this, if the owner of the house had known what part of the night the thief was coming, he would have stayed awake and would not have let, him, let his house be broken into. Therefore, you must also be ready for the son of man is coming at an unexpected hour. Who then is the faithful and wise slave whom his master has put in charge of his household to give the other slaves their allowance of food at the proper time? Blessed is the slave whom his master will find at work when he arrives. Truly, I tell you, he will put that one in charge of all of his possessions. But if that wicked slave says to himself, my master is delayed, he ain't coming back and begins to beat his fellow slaves and eats and drinks with drunkards, the master of that slave will come one day and when he does not expect him at an hour that he does not know and he will cut him into pieces and put him with the hypocrites where there there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Jesus uses two pictures here. A ready homeowner, a ready homeowner and a faithful steward. A ready homeowner and a faithful steward. You know, there were no cops back then, for those that didn't know. Bozier police was not cruising through the neighborhood, you know, (laughs) going around saying, sir, did you have a (laughs) break-in? No, no, no. And if you expected a Roman soldier to go around knocking on your door, they weren't there to protect you. They were there to what? Take from you. Give me the bed. You're sleeping outside. Carry my stuff. And much worse. Houses were made of clay and hay and stone, easily to break into. So, if you knew, Jesus asked this question, it's actually pretty funny. He's making a joke almost. So, if you knew someone's gonna break into your home at a particular time of the night, would you stay up and be ready for him or her to come? I'm gonna come and rob your home at 3:15 tonight. Are you just gonna still be asleep when I come at 3:15? What are you gonna be doing? Some of you are like, well, this is Bozier, so people got shotguns here. You, know, some of you are like, I'm ready. You know, it's like, some of you got a baseball bat. Some of you are like, brass knuckles. Of course, you're going to be ready. And, and that's what's funny is that, of course, does anybody know when a thief comes? That's the point. That's the, that's the point that I think Jesus made. It's really kind of ironic. The thief, the thief represents Jesus, obviously. And the fact that we can, what we can take from this is is this, Jesus' return will be unexpected. And so all of the, I know when he's coming back and I did this algorithm in the Bible and two plus 70 is Jesus coming back and numerology, all of that. No, he's coming unexpectedly. Like a thief that comes, you don't know when, but when they do, they just show up. You want to be ready. And so what Jesus is saying is this, if I'm coming like a thief in the night, what that means and what I expect from you is that you would be mindful and prepared. Our lives as Jesus' followers should be marked by this anticipation of Jesus' return. We should long for it. We should long for it and what that all means. And so what this requires is vigilance, intentionality and focus. What we're really fighting against here is indifference and carelessness during Jesus's delay. And every single one of us have felt it, haven't we? Where the cares of this world have blinded us or taken us away from this idea that seems so bleak and distant. We've become indifferent. That's what indifference means. It doesn't matter if I think about the Jesus return or don't think about it. It doesn't matter if, I, if it happens or it doesn't. My life, what is currently in front of my face, That's the resistance. Jesus is saying, you ain't ready. You still sleep it in the night. And when I show up, you're still going to be asleep. When he says to you, you need to be mindful of it. It should be something that you think about every day. I'm coming back. And all that that means, you're missing a part of history to come when you're not mindful of my return. Being watchful, being ready, being prepared. It isn't passive. It's actively there. It's resisting carelessness and indifference. And we do this through this walk with Christ, don't we? As we gather as a community. I'm reminded of of Christ's return when I hear the miracles in your life. I'm reminded of, yeah, I'm so glad God healed you of sickness, but man, I'm thinking about a day where sickness would be no more. Mm. Yeah, that's right. I hear about the issues that you're facing and then I think about what eternity means in light of that. I'm like, yeah, that's right. As a community, we spur one another on to put before us the return of Christ and what it means. When We constantly put the biblical story in front of us. If you're gonna read any amount of the Bible, you're gonna get this sense of history and what you're a part and how you're a part of something bigger and where it's headed. Singing about it, thinking about it. What Jesus is simply saying is this. We should think about the thief. If you're taking notes, you can write that down. We should think about the thief. Think about him. Yeah, okay. He has my attention today. Doesn't mean that I have to think about it 24-7. Just means that it's there. I'm not asleep. I'm awake. And so being ready for the unexpected return is not out of this fear of punishment. It's because obviously the spirit of the bridegroom says what? Come. The spirit of the bridegroom says, come, come, we want you, Lord. We want to see him, we want to know, him. we want to have him change this broken world once and for all, right? But Jesus also gives us something very practical to do. He talks not only about the faithful homeowner, he talks about the faithful steward, the faithful steward. In a household, there were servants, there were slaves, and then there was the household manager. It's like the nurse and then the charge nurse. You follow me? And so a, a steward oversaw all of the servants in all of the household. And the master had expectations for this this household manager. They were to take care of the relationships, how they treated the other servants. They were not to lord over them, but they were to use the authority that the master gave them to actually serve the servants. But also they were to take care of the resources and not squander it. The wine vats and the wheat, the grain and the sheep and the cattle, they weren't to squander these things. Because while the master's away, You were not to play. Now, what's nice and what's interesting about this is that we often think that if a master leaves, they would leave for just a few weeks. And sometimes they would leave for months and for years, taking care of business, going and planting new vineyards and exploring new opportunities. And this isn't the age of the iPhone. So it's not like the master could give a heads up. Mama's coming home. (laughs) Better have the house clean. No, they would just simply arrive probably tired, ready to get their feet washed and a beard to be trimmed. And they come home and they find what? All of the slaves have run away because of the abuse of who? Where's all the wine? Where's the wheat that I left? You were supposed to manage it. Where is it? This, where is it? You see, the true test of a steward was when the master left, what would the steward do? The absence of the master showed if the steward was faithful or not, not when he was there. Because any of us, when the master is present, when the boss is in the room, it's like, of course you're gonna put your best foot forward. But it's when the boss left. It's when the master leaves, what does the steward do with what God has given them, the relationships and the resources that they have? That's the true test. And so the faithful steward is mindful of their master, even when the master is not present. Are you getting this? They take responsibility for the master for what he's entrusted to him. And at any moment, the master could return. And so what do they do? They make preparations. They go to the extra mile. He could come back today. So instead of leaving the bed unmade, I'm gonna go ahead and make the bed. I'm gonna take the 30 seconds and do that because the master could return today. And I care about the master. And I'm faithful to the master. Even when the master's not in the room, I'm faithful to the master. Hey, no, 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 no. We don't wanna spend too much of the wine. What if the master returns and finds that we have abused it? How would that look on the master? Oh, guests are coming and you're drunk? That doesn't represent the master well. you getting the language? That's a faithful steward. What are they constantly thinking about? The master. And how what they do with their life implicates him, even though he's not here. Now, do you think that some of the other slaves who Wanted to push. Do you think that maybe they probably try to make an appeal? Just come on, pour a little bit more. The master ain't here. Come on, let us let us let us off early a little bit early. We don't need to do all of that. I know you wanted the shed built, but not all of it, right? Let's take a couple of weeks off. He's gone. Siesta. Amen. And then I can just imagine this faithful steward, this faithful household manager just casting the vision. But what if the master returns? How are you going to feel when the master returns? How are you going to feel about the how we treated one another and how we treated his resources? How are we going to feel when the man with eyes of fire who cannot be manipulated sees us for all that we are? He can't be swindled. He can't be deceived. And he sees us as we are. We are vulnerable. We are nude. How would we feel? See, the unfaithful steward does the exact opposite. He sees the master's delay as an excuse to do whatever they please. He ain't here. <laughs> well, mama don't know won't hurt her. Just take a little snort of that wine. No one's going to see. Take a little bit more of the grain. Man, this, the servants are a little bit thick. You know what I'm saying? There's no indication of lordship when the master's gone. None. They squander all that they're given. And the unfaithful steward really just looks like, like he doesn't have a master. Drunk, abusing authority. This is a bad household manager. This is unfaithful. What we discover about this and what Jesus is teaching is that Jesus' return will not just be unexpected, it will be revealing. Because it's when the master comes back that the faithfulness of the unfaithfulness of the steward is shown, right? This is what you have done. There's an account given. So when Jesus comes back, it will be unexpected, but it's not just going to be a, a fly on the wall. There's going to be, all is going to be revealed. Nothing that was you thought was hidden or secret will be remain that way. It will be brought into the light, the one who is light. We will give an account. In Jesus' delay, Jesus' followers are to show they are anticipating his return by taking responsibility for their relationships and resources. We show that we are the faithful stewards by being faithful, being responsible with the people that are under our care, in our care, and the resources that he's given us. Anybody can say, I'm ready for him to come back, and maybe in our hearts, but we can take a quick assessment of the people in our life and how we treat them and the resources, the things that we have in our life and how we treat them. And that is a good indicator whether or not we are really, really ready. Ready for the master to come and take a look. If you want to take notes, you can write this down. What Jesus is saying is that we show we are ready by being responsible. We show we are ready by being responsible. We don't use Jesus's delay as an excuse to live any way that we want, but we live to hear, well done, good and faithful servant. Again, knowing the end informs how we should live in our present. In Thessalonians, these are not in my notes, but in Thessalonians, first and second Thessalonians, these New Testament letters, um, Jesus, uh, Paul, Paul plants a church in Thessalonica and, uh, near Macedonia, and he plants this church really quick, but you can read it, he has to get out really quick because he's persecuted really quick, and so there's this baby church. And all he has time to drop is, Jesus is coming back, get ready. And he leaves, he has to to leave, he gets persecuted, he has to driven out. And so you can even read the tone of 1 Thessalonians as Paul's heart is breaking. He wants and longs to be with them back. You can read it in 1 Thessalonians 1. And he longs to be back with them because they were just babies. He just didn't have enough time to pastor them a year or two like he did the Ephesus. And when he writes it, what he found was that he hears that what something was happening, is that when he came in and just dropped, Jesus is coming back, you know what people started doing? They started quitting their jobs, and they quit working. They're like, he's coming back. <laughs> I mean, he's coming back. Who needs to do this anymore? This life doesn't matter. Deuces. People getting divorced, people killing their dogs. It was. It got radical. It got weird. And so when you read 1 Thessalonians, that's one of the occasions of the letters. Paul's writing to the church in Thessalonica because it's like, Hey guys, let's get some clear let's clear some things up about when Jesus is coming about what it means. And what Paul uses is this powerful powerful story if I can share with you if that's okay. It's called the Parousia. You may want to write this down. Parousia. Look it up. It's fascinating. P A R O U S I A. P A R par ousia O U S I A. Check it out. The Parousia this is fascinating. in the in the time in that that ancient world, um, you would often, if a city had a uh, if a city had a disaster like a hurricane or earthquake, more more like an earthquake, like Antioch, for instance, one of the first Gentile cities, the first Gentile city that was established that was Christian. Uh, Antioch was a major hub in northern Middle East. It, would, it suffered historically six earthquakes that shook its foundation. It was common in Antioch for three-story homes to be just shaken to the core, and 400 people die like that. Average age in Antioch was 31, 32. People died very, I'm 31, by the way. Like I'd be, I would be like, like, people are like, you're 31? <laughs> you living in that bougie cave over the sides like, I am. I share this because the Perusia, back on topic. So a disaster would happen in the city and so the city was like, what do, like we need help. So they would make an appeal to the emperor. And the emperor would write a check to a bunch, of, uh, a bunch of funds to that city to repair. So imagine, hey, we're in trouble. We just had an earthquake. I heard, you know, my profits are going down because taxes are going down. Let me write you a check for a million dollars. See what you can do to repair. So he would give the check to them. Well, a year, two, three years would go by, and the emperor wouldn't, wouldn't give a report. You didn't have to rebuild. Until the Perusia. The Perusia is when the emperor came and visited this once broken city. And after he had resourced them, what they had done with it. The Perusia is when the emperor would show up and the first thing, and you—if you read First Thessalonians, you'll see this imagery I'm gonna give you. But you would see this, a trumpet would be sounded. <laughs> and everyone knew he's here. The emperor has come. And nobody show up, that show boat like that. The emperor has come. And often outside of the city is where you kept the graveyard. It's where you kept the dead, outside of the city. Um, and so this is why the Bible says that the the, uh, the the dead will rise first, right? Because what does the emperor first do after the trumpet sound? He comes and he pays homage, homage to the dead. And he says, here lies here, here lies the recent ruler, here lies them. Hmm. Oh, I remember him, I had him killed. Yes, there's that. And then they enter into the city gates. And there, they're given a report. Look at what we did for you. We, we took the money you gave us and we built a bigger aqueduct because it collapsed. We even built a statue that looks like you. huh? He's like, that's not my chin. We've, we've built a, a temple. We've, we've uh, we created a coliseum so people can fight to the death and get a lot of money. And we've done all this for the money that you've given us. And he'd make a decision right then and there. Well done. Or I think his response would be if he said, he looks at the city and said, there's no repairs. He's going to the leaders of that city and he's executing them like that. That's the perusia. And that's that's the same air that Jesus is speaking is that we show we're faithful by being responsible with what we've been given. And it's not to earn anything. We've been freely given it. We've been blessed with every spiritual blessing in heaven. Ephesians 1, in Christ Jesus. What are we doing with a life of grace and joy and peace that he's given us? How has it affected our resources? What have we done with them? And what have we done with the relationships in our life? What Paul is saying and what, the, what Jesus is saying is the same. There's a parousia that will take place where we will show what we did in the absence of the master. And we will give an account of how we've been faithful or how we've been unfaithful as stewards, as household managers. I know this is not a very very encouraging message, but I find it to be deeply encouraging because I find often that we are unfaithful simply because we haven't taken a very good inventory of what we do have. We squander it because we don't take inventory of it. But the more we realize of what we've been given in Christ, I find the more we'll be faithful, faithful with that thing, responsible for that thing. We will better respond to what we've been given when we take a better account of it, right? Next, Jesus tells one more story that we're going to cover tonight, and it's found in Matthew twenty-five. Matthew twenty-five is possibly the most—it's—it actually is for me the most—the the most scariest chapter in the whole Bible. It's—it's—it's, uh, it's, uh, it's, gosh, it is so intimidating. Uh, but it is so, uh, it is so sobering and uh, exposing to the heart and our fellowship of Him. In Matthew 25, uh, Jesus tells this story, and it's a familiar one that you've probably heard of, the parable of the 10 bridesmaids or the 10 virgins. Virgin, if you've ever ever heard of that. Okay, a few of you, thank you. It goes like this. It says, then the kingdom of heaven will be like this. 10 bridesmaids took their lamps and went to meet the bridegroom. Five of them were foolish and five of them were wise. And when the foolish took their lamps, they took no oil with them. But the wise took flasks of oil with their lamps. And as the bridegroom was delayed, all of them became drowsy and slept. But at midnight, there was a shout. Look, here's the bridegroom. Come out to meet him. Then all those bridesmaids got up, trimmed their lamps. But the foolish said to the wise, hey, quick, give us some of your oil for our lamps are going out. But the wise replied, no, There will not be enough for you and for us. It had better go to the dealers and buy some for yourselves. And while they went to buy it, the bridegroom came, and those who were ready went with him into the wedding banquet, and the door was shut. Later, the other bridesmaids came also, saying, Lord, Lord, open to us. But he replied, Truly, I tell you, I do not know you. Keep awake, therefore. For you know neither the day nor the hour. A little bit of history about this passage so we can really look at this. What Jesus is trying to tell us is that, you know, in a Jewish wedding, there's typically three stages. You have the engagement that's made between the fathers typically. The betrothal, where promises are made, she can no longer be given to anyone else. And this betrothal typically lasted about a year where they would prepare. And then you had the wedding. The wedding was so unique. What was so unique about it was the wedding procession. And that's what this parable is about. It's about a wedding procession that took place. It was a big moment. Wedding processions went from the bride's house to the groom's house. Can you imagine that You're in Bosier? Like if you live in Shreveport and like you live in Benton, it's like, ooh, that's a long procession, man. It was like a funeral, not a wedding. Are you kidding? But it would take place in the groom's house and at the, uh, the bride's house. And it happened at night. And that's why they needed torches, typically, sticks with oiled rags on it. And so the bridesmaids and the bride, her and her wedding party, they would wait at the bride's parents' house, at her dad's house, her mom and dad's house. And they would wait. They would wait for what? Messengers to come and declare what? The groom is coming. The groom is coming. It was so late into the night because oftentimes delays were natural because they would be um, uh, arguing over the gifts if they were adequate enough for the bride, you know, the dowry. But when the groom came, uh, the bridesmaids, the virgins themselves, would go and meet the groom and his groomsmen with their torches lit in the middle of the night saying, it's happening. And they would go and escort them back to the bride. And there's the bride at her dad's house. And the groom would show up for his bride. And the bridesmaids would carry the torches to light the way back to the groom's house. They would all go as a big party. It was a big moment. Everybody would come out of their houses and be like, who getting married? It's like they would see the lights in the middle of the night, and they would come out and see the procession. Everyone knew this is their moment. Because marriage was sacred, marriage was honorable in this culture. And everyone knew what was gonna happen that night: a celebration and a consummation. Man and wife. It was gonna be, it was gonna be legitimate. This was such a year-long process. Money was saved. Things were costly. This is the moment. And so the bridesmaids had the honor. They were virgins themselves to be a part of that. The bride had probably had been a bridesmaid for someone else, carried the the torch for someone else, a young girl, ready. I value marriage enough. I want to be a part of just even a part of this. They would carry their torch. They would light the way. To participate in the wedding procession was a great honor. And what cost the bridesmaid was simply this. They had to make sure they had oil. The one thing that they were responsible responsible for, other than wearing a certain color, was having that torch, being able to keep the light from the distance of meeting the groom back to the bridesmaid's bride's house, back to the groom's house. It had to be lit that long, and so they needed oil. And so having no torches lit, imagine how insulting that would be. Not honoring the moment, not honoring the marriage. To not understand the privilege and to be careless with a task was a great insult to the culture and to the family. Enough for you to say, I don't know who you are. You understand, this is Eastern culture. It's a culture of shame. I don't know you. Because the people that run with me are people of honor. And it'll take lightly the biggest moment of my life. It was a privilege to be a part of the wedding procession. But we also see why the wise bridesmaids had to deny their foolish, the foolish their oil, don't we? Because really, they wouldn't be enough for the wedding. Because sometimes we read that and we're like, man, why couldn't they just share some of the oil? Well, because they're so concerned about the bridegroom. It wasn't about them. It was about the bridegroom and providing light in the middle of the darkness for them to have their moment. I wanna be a part of that. The foolish virgins, the foolish bridesmaid, they insulted and dishonored the whole wedding. They had a torch and a rag. And you can light that rag, but does it stay lit very long? And so, yeah, they were a part of it, and then they burned out. The oil. The oil is what they were responsible for. They had the appearance of being ready, but with no oil to burn when the time came. They lacked wisdom and foresight to be ready when the groom comes, not found wanting They didn't buy the oil when it mattered. You see, I think what we can all fall into and what Jesus I think is trying to get us at is that they thought they could have celebration without consecration. But the truth is that there is no celebration without consecration. It's not about taking it lightly it's about taking it costly. And the more we honor something, the more we believe something to be true and have weight and value. Literally, the Greek word honor is time. It looks like time. And it means to esteem something, to assess it a value. It was used in the marketplace. You know, that, that ring, you know, it time, it honors, eh, brings in 120. So if we're gonna honor this rightly, we wouldn't take it lightly. We'd make it costly. There is no celebration, true celebration, without that sense of consecration. You know, throughout history, oil. Oil is expensive. It's a costly process. It had a three-part process too. You had to crush the olive, and it produced this pulp. And then the pulp had to be sifted and separated the oil from the solid parts. And so you'd be left with water, solids, and the oil. The oil. That's what Jesus is trying to tell us, is that we don't take Jesus' return lightly, but we take it costly. Oil is a representation, biblically, of many things, but it's a representation of the Holy Spirit. Oil is a representation of the Holy Spirit. You see it in the Old Testament, where they would anoint people with what? Oil. Samuel found David in the shepherd's field, and what did he do? He took the whole vat of oil and dumped it on his head. Oil, anointing, the presence of the Holy Spirit for such a time as this. Without oil, the wedding party is really not ready for the bridegroom, are they? And in a similar way, without the Holy Spirit, the church isn't ready for the return of Jesus. This is why Galatians 5.16 says this. Live by the Spirit, I say, and do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Live by the Spirit. And do not gratify the desires of the flesh. Denying ourselves. Feeding not our sinful, selfish desires that are self serving, but feeding our spirit led desires is what produces oil. It's the crushing of the flesh that makes the oil that burns. We want to Burn for God. Why do I feel so complacent? Why do I feel so ah, lackadaisical? Why do I feel indifferent? Because the flesh hasn't been crushed yet. For there to be fire, you have to have oil. And for there to be oil, you have the crushing of the flesh, the crushing of the olive has to take place. When we deny ourselves, constantly feed feed on the word, on worship, on service, on prayer, on sacrifice, on fasting and repentance and silence so that what we would live by the spirit and not our selfish driven desires. That is consecration. That is the mystery. That is a life that is set apart, not for the sake of just being set apart. It's a life set apart that I may know him and burn for him all my days that whether man fails me, a pastor falls, a church gets shut down, none of those things matter because I have oil that can be burned. I'm consecrated for you, God. This is why Matthew 5, 8 says, blessed are the pure in heart, for they will see God. The reward for purity is intimacy. The reward for living a life that is set apart It's intimacy with him. And some of us would say, well, that's works. That's religious. Listen, you you, this this is not a, a salvation issue. You could be saved, got your ticket to heaven, sure. But miss this. No man, no man that can draw truly draws near to God does so lightly or freely. What Jesus did for us, he paid the price. And yes, the freedom, it is free. Salvation is free, yes, but intimacy will cost you. Absolutely. And we're not earning anything from God. We're posturing ourselves before God. That's different. And consecration is that mark. And you know, I don't believe that it's, I don't believe it's cookie cut for anybody and everybody. I think, I think, I think others may, but I may not. Write that down for me in your notes if you're taking notes tonight. Others may, but I may not. That's the attitude of consecration. In 1 Corinthians, I believe I believe eight, I always get seven and eight mixed up, seven eight mixed up, but and I think it's in eight, there's this uh, dilemma over food offered to idols, Paul's addressing. Some believers are, you know, you'd go to the marketplace, and the food that they cut up, the bulls that they cut up, they would sell some of the meat that didn't burn for Zeus. They would sell it at the marketplace, and you can get it cheaper. And so, some believers, the Christians, are like, man, I love God, but that meat's cheaper. Let's go, you know. So they just get that meat, be cooking it up, be like, bless it, Yahweh, and they would eat it. Well, some of the other Christians in the church had a problem with that. They're eating food offered to idols. And Paul says about those people, they have, a, they have a weak conscience. That's not even a real God. He's It's made up. It's like eating to the wall. It doesn't mean anything, but sure. And that's when Paul talks about the law of love. Knowledge puffs up, but love edifies, he says. Where am I going with this? Others may, but I may not. That's the culture. That's the heart of your own life. You know exactly where you're not consecrating, but compromising. I don't need to tell you that you already know that if you have the spirit of god the spirit of truth in your life you know where you are not consecrating you are compromising you know and can i let you know a little secret what is permissible in one season with god is not permissible in another as you walk with him what was okay when you just started following jesus that was permissible but then God invites you into a deeper level of intimacy. That means he's going to draw you a little bit closer. What does that mean? It's going to cost you a little bit more. And yeah, it, it rubs the flesh. Mm, that's not what I want. But it produces oil. That pressing produces oil. And that's what God can say. Ah, you provide the sacrifice. I provide the fire. You provide the sacrifice, I provide the fire. You know, and sometimes we get, we're so elementary with God sometimes. Sometimes we're like, God, come to me. And God in his mercy comes to us in a measure and we're satisfied with that, but there's more. And that's why some of you in this room, you're longing for more, but you're unwilling to get out of that place of comfort and get consecrated and let God clean some things up. And it's like, well, that's, I'm trying to earn, you're not earning anything. You're posturing yourself. There's no fire without oil. And what you're saying is that I don't want to take this lightly, I want to take this costly. Oil, it's funny, oil is also not just about self-denial in in the way that we are not going to watch this, listen to this, do this, do that, do this, that others do. You know, my mom told me a funny story. She said some of her friends, my adopted mom, she's in her 70s now, but uh, she was in her late 50s when I was in her house. And she said that some of her friends had like, they would drop their phones. These are believers, like they love God. They're serving the church, but they would like drop their phones in the toilet and then like go to like 18th year or whatever. And like, man, this happened to get a new phone. And my mom was just like, I'm not judging them at all. Like that's what's in them and God. But she's like, I could never. But then my mom would do other things where I'm like, I could never, you know, it's like, you know. But that's that attitude of others may. They may be able to get away with that. Their conscience is not seared. That's not sin to them. They're like, woo, and, and me, it's like, ooh, I can't go there. Others may, but I may not. I live a life that's consecrated. And so that's why I'm not preaching like, you can't watch TV. It's No one's saying that. But for some of you, some of you do need to cut off some shows that you're watching. Not because I told you so, because that's what the spirit of God is drawing. I've had to sell things that I've bought. I've had to give things away. I've, I've had to cut some things off of my life. I've had to stop listening to a love song before. It doesn't mean anything to you. It sounds like to you, you're like, man, that's, but for me and the Lord, like that was it. That was oil produced in my life. God was saying, you, you were permitted to listen to that, that but like, I want to bring you places where you trust me, but it's going to cost you. I am Lord. I'm over here praying for God to give me more of him. And he's like, I'm trying to take it and you won't give it. (laughs) You want fire, but you're not giving me oil. Press the olive, press the olive, press the olive and watch God set that that stuff ablaze. Watch him set it ablaze. And you know what I love about fire? Fire does a couple things. It provides light, it provides warmth and that stuff spreads. And some of us wanna see our homes. Come on, come on. We wanna see our husbands, we wanna see our wives, we wanna see our kids, we wanna see our mom and dad come to know God. I'll tell you right now, there's something about, it's not earning anything, it's about posturing. But man, when you posture yourself, ah, uh, when you properly honor God and what he's saying and what he's willing to do and people in your life, honor's reward comes in heavenly perspective. The reward of properly honoring something is heaven perspective. It's the same thing when I said, blessed are the pure not for they will see God. The word of intimacy is, the word of purity is intimacy. says, I'm saying the same thing. When you live an oiled filled life, an oiled filled life, your kids start seeing it. They see the fire. They want to know what it is. And you say, you want to know what it is? Compress the flesh a little bit with me. Lean in and watch oil. Watch what God does with the oil that you give him. And he sets it ablaze because people are not interested in your oil, they wanna see what? Fire. Oil is only as good and valuable as it's able to be lit. That's the only reason why anybody goes and spends money on oil, is because you can set it on fire. Are you guys following me? Oil is also the same Greek word as mercy. If you look at the Greek word for oil and the Greek word for mercy, it's very similar oil is also seen not as the holy spirit but it's also made through charity through alms giving through how we treat other people i'll tell you what right now you want to know the number one way you can produce oil is if you're married that is a very real way <laughs> jesus to 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 deny yourself luke 9:23 is about marriage man i'm telling you right now <laughs> if any man follow me let him get married <laughs> it's like sorry that's a little bit no, I'm joking. But it really is. It's about denying yourself. Alms giving and charity. How you treat others. You know, I've been insulted. Let it roll off me. Bless them right back. Oil. God will set that ablaze. Yeah? When Jesus returns, we want to be found with oil for the celebration. We want to show the wisdom of knowing that there's no celebration without consecration. We know that, God. We have oil. We, want, we don't want to take being a part of the wedding lightly. We want to honor him. And again, we don't do this to earn something, right? But this is out of a response, what he's given us. And let me say this, that's what worship is. I can invite the keys up. That, that's what worship is. Worship is a response to what God has given. Worship, it's on a song. Worship isn't music. Worship is simply a response to what he's already done, who he already is. That's why why God is deserving of worship in your life if he never did another thing for you. Because it's what he's already done. He's already done. He's deserving of worship. He's deserving of a proper response that doesn't take it lightly, but takes it costly. God, I love you. And God, I want all of my life to be given to you. I wanna be faithful and responsible for you. Worship, because why? You've done that for me. That's the spirit of worship. That's what worship is. We take in a proper account of what God has done and we respond accordingly. And that's all, that's what the wedding banquet's about. I give you the honor of being a part And you give the oil. Our three takeaways today, and I'm gonna ask you just a few questions and then then we'll pray, you know, last last couple minutes together. Jesus simply said this think about the thief. Show that you're ready by being responsible. Look at your resources, look at your relationships. And then he taught us this he says we should never take his return lightly but take it costly there is no celebration without consecration thinking about the thief that just simply means this i'm going to put before me the return of christ every day it's going to cross my mind at least once and you know what? You know what really does that is just unfairness, injustice, sickness, the fallenness of the world will really quickly push you to think about the end. Just like the disciples. Tell us about the end, because we're trying to make a sense of our present. And so the next time you face lack, hurt, pain, suffering, you see it in someone else. Look at Ukraine. It's just stirring you to think, but there is a day where the dead will rise first where you will come, where you will make it right, where king, you will be king, the rightful king, the only true king. Come, Lord, come. It's an attitude of worship. And and we should take an evaluation of our life. We should show that we're ready by being responsible. I believe that God has identified an area in your life tonight where you know you're not being responsible. It could be a relationship, it could be resources, but you know, you know what I love about the Lord is there's so much grace when you come to him and you confess, right? This is part of being faithful. It's just, God, I'm not being faithful. I'm not being responsible. But God, I want you to, I want you to help me in this area. Help me to be that way. Because God, I don't want to be found wanting. I want to be a faithful steward. Not an unfaithful one. And God responds to that. Blessed are the poor in spirit. Blessed is the one who understands that they can't do it on their own and have our spiritually poverty. And who leans upon me for theirs is the kingdom of heaven. All of this is built for the one who says, God, I can't do it, but I can do it in you. Blessed is one who gets that. And then lastly, we should take Jesus's return costly, not lightly. I believe God tonight has looked at your life and the Holy Spirit has already pricked your heart about an area of compromise. And God is saying, I want that. I want you to consecrate that to me. Don't do it for him. Don't do it for them. I want you to do it for me. Give it to me. Consecrate it. Give it to me. You know what that area is. You know what that thing is. And if you don't, ask the Holy Spirit. Ask God. God, show me where, 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 I, where you're wanting me to give more to you, to consecrate to you. Because you are that worthy. You are that honorable. You are worthy of that. some questions just to ask yourself is how do you resist the drift towards indifference and carelessness? How do you keep a radar on your heart throughout the day, throughout the week where my heart is becoming indifferent? I'm getting careless. Are you aware of your responsibilities that God has entrusted to you? You're aware of the relationships, the resources that he's brought into your world and He's asking you to be faithful with those things. And the last question is this, am I living a consecrated life to him out of love for him? Is that my motive? Is that why I do what I do? Because some of us, this idea of consecration out of love is very freeing because some of us are religious in the room and we consecrate not for him, but out of some sort of validation for our own lives that we're better than other people. I don't do that. And still we can miss it, even in that. It's got to be a love offering. Thank you for listening. To hear more messages like this one, make sure to subscribe and share our podcast. For more content from NCC and how to get connected, visit ncc.team.